Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we are at the end of a four-part series on suffering. It's always fun to preach on suffering. Everyone loves you. Kim and I always shake our head whenever I preach on suffering because we know what's coming our way, and to be sure it has and will continue to be that way. Quick review, again, just as I do each week. We saw in Acts 9, which is where we began with the conversion of Saul, coming from being a man who was a persecutor. We literally did a Lord's Supper talking about it. A persecutor of the church to now part of the church, he became a Christian. And in that, God said that he would show him how much he must suffer for his name's sake. And out of that, I began to talk about the reality of the Christian's life, that there will become a time for every one of you in this room who names the name of Christ that you will suffer and you have to own it. You have to own it. You have to accept the fact that God has called you to suffer for his name's sake. Some will be great, some will be minor, but all of us who are a Christian must suffer. We see it at people mocking us at our work. We have it with our own spouses, our children, our parents. It doesn't matter. There will be some level of suffering, great or small. From there, I then contemplated with you the cause of all suffering just in general. And I I pointed out that everyone suffers, Christian and non-Christian alike. It doesn't matter simply because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world under the domination of sin, sin outside of us, but also sin that flows within us, that all of us born in sin, under sin, are therefore sinners by nature. And out of that then comes all that sin produces, which is, which is death ultimately, but even sickness and disease. From there, we then talked about the idea of what it looks like of suffering for doing wrong. All of us at some point as a Christian will do something wrong. You will just sin. You will do foolish things, and there are certain natural consequences that come with that. And those are not necessarily the discipline of the Lord or not. They're just simply consequences. If you jump off a building without a parachute, you're going to fall. You step in front of a car, you're going to be struck. These are just simple things. And he tells us in the Scripture, God shows us in Scripture, that when we are suffering because we did wrong, and we're bearing up and showing patience in our suffering because we did wrong, he's like, there's no praise there. Because... You did wrong. You chose to act wrongly. You chose to sin. And now the consequences are on you. So bear up under it and get move on. But don't think that your praise, you should receive praise because you did something wrong and now you're being punished for it and you're accepting the punishment. And then something slightly different we talked about last time, and that was the discipline of the Lord, that there are times where we as Christians will be in sin and and in such a way that God intervenes in our life and he disciplines us. And this can be very, very difficult, very hard, where God takes a sinning, wandering child of his and brings discipline. This is much more than just simple consequences. This is where the Father intervenes in a very painful and very life-altering way in the life of a wandering believer. My old pastor, John MacArthur, writes of, about when he knew he had been called to be a pastor and he had been called into that life, and he didn't want to, and he was resisting it, and he he tells this story frequently of driving about 70 miles an hour down the road in a convertible, and they had an accident. He was ejected from the car, and he slid on his backside down the road for quite a ways and lost about an inch of flesh off of his backside of his body. 
And when he ended that, came to the stop, he, he just said, okay, <laughs> you win. You've heard my story of when I hit the car head on with my motorcycle and on my way to commit sin. And there was no question in my mind when I saw the damage done to my body, what had happened in that moment. It's, it's like when the father grabs a hold of the son by the scruff of his neck and, and he just goes pale because now he is in the grip of his father. And the father now disciplines him so as to bring about change. We see in 1 Corinthians 11 that he says, some of you, because of your sin, are sick. And some of your people have died. Why? Because of sin. Why? Because God has intervened. Well, today, what I want to do is now pull back and give you a big picture on trials and hardships in general. Just a general sense of trials and hardships in the life of a believer. Now, let me give you a point of clarification. When you're dealing with trials and hardships and suffering, really it breaks down to two categories. Now, before we talk about those two categories briefly, I want you to understand I'm not talking about suffering and trials for the non-Christian. A lot of times a non-Christian will hear this and say, oh, okay, that's great. But it's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about it from the perspective of a Christian. For a non-Christian, though there might be similarities in the suffering, those trials do not have a sanctifying work, meaning they do not produce in you holiness because at this point you're not even saved. God may use and work through those trials and suffering to bring you to himself, but at that point, only after you come to faith in Christ does can you say give and learn to give thanks for the trials in your life because you see that God is at work in them. I'm I'm not talking then here about the non-Christian. I'm talking about the Christian. So hear that and keep that in mind. As I said, there's two categories basically with trials and suffering. The first I've already mentioned and that is simply you're suffering because you're a Christian. Meaning, you can look at this and know that the, the, the reason that you have been beaten is not because you have a big mouth, but because you believe in Christ. That because you have lost your job, not because you're an unfaithful employee, but because you believe in Christ and you refuse to do something that would be unrighteous. You have been imprisoned, perhaps, by your governing authorities, not because you have done wrong, but because you are a follower of Christ, and you cannot do certain things, and they punish you for it. So that's the first category. The second one, you can lose a lot of time trying to figure out, well, is this just the natural consequences of my sin, or is this a discipline from the Lord, or what? It doesn't really matter. These are specific subsets, but really everything else is just suffering and trials. And you can spend a lot of time trying to figure out, well, which one is it? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. In the end, if you're not suffering specifically because you are a Christian for his name, then you're just suffering and it's coming from the hand of the Lord in one way or the other. But the answer ultimately, beloved, will be the same. That's what I'm trying to say. It's, it will ultimately be the same. In fact, strangely enough, all trials and suffering for a Christian flow out of a faith in Christ. All of your suffering as a Christian, hear me again, as a Christian, all of your suffering is flowing as a result of faith in Christ. Think about that. They're not the means of faith, nor are they the focus or object of faith. The object of your faith is Christ, right? And, and your trials don't make you have faith, but they are a result of having this faith in Christ. They are the natural consequence of faith in Christ. They are actually, now hear me on this, and you'll be a wiser person for it. They are the key means of God to both purify and mature your faith in the only thing that matters, and that is Jesus Christ. 
Every one of you in this room who is a Christian, you suffer because you have faith in Christ and God is working and using and designing those sufferings and trials to grow you. We tend to focus on the mercy and the patience and the kindness of God so that when suffering strikes us, we actually are uh, shocked. Why? Why? God is God of love. Why would he do this? Why would he allow this? What is happening? But the reality is we should never be shocked when trials come upon us because they are to be expected because the Bible tells us to not be surprised. Now, I ask you to open your Bibles to Luke 13. Hopefully, you have them open by now. If not, please do so. And I want to briefly look at verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to go into this in detail. If you want a detailed exposition of it, and then it would be worth your time, I would recommend uh, Matt Miller's sermon up at the Vine in Milwaukee. He is... Uh, he is preaching through Luke, and he dealt with this in detail. I'm only going to give you a few minutes of it. But it's a good theological foundation that helps unveil hidden assumptions that we carry in our hearts. I'll just read it and then make some observations. He said, it, it, Luke writes, Now at that same time there were some present who were reporting to him, him being Jesus, about the Galileans. These are Jews who lived in the area of Galilee, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate is, a le- uh, is the leader, the Roman uh, governor. And he mixed it with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you think that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent that change of mind and change of direction, you all will all likewise perish. Or do you think that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse offenders than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, what, what's going on with that? Well, people came and they said, hey, you know, what, what do you think about what happened with these Galileans? They, they got slaughtered, and then Pilate took their blood and mixed it with the blood of the sacrifices in the temple and defiled the temple, defiled the altar. This is wicked. This is evil. And why would God, why did those Galileans have that happen to them? That's the question that's going on in their mind. For us, when we have bad things happen to us or we watch something really bad happen to somebody else, oftentimes we wonder, what's going on? Why? How can God stand by while this tower or this slaughter takes place to these innocent people? That's what some people are thinking. A husband and wife has just lost their spouse and they're like, why? What? What? Why? Why did he or she go? They've done no wrong yet. Their life is ripped from them. Their loved ones lose them forever. But I want you to notice how Jesus answers them. He said, really, here's the question is, do you think they were worse? So for most people, what they try to do is they try to make sense of this. And this is might be common with you that you begin to think that something was wrong with the person's life and that's why they got killed. That's why they were taken away at such a sudden manner. And so he says, do you think these people were worse sinners than you? And in saying that, what he's really doing is revealing what they're assuming. And it's because when we see a tragedy, we tend to try to make sense of it. And so we begin to think, well, maybe they deserved it. Maybe there's things we don't know about. We should just trust God, but maybe, maybe that person deserved it. But his answer is actually very brutal. He doesn't give any nuance. He gives no sympathy. He just says this. He's like, no, no, that's not the problem, guys. He's like, you may think they might be, have been worse than you. But the reality is that you're going to suffer that same reality of death yourself unless you repent. In reality, what he's doing is he's showing them that they're asking the wrong question. Hear me on this. He's at, you're asking, and he, and these people are asking the wrong question when they think that way. The correct answer, or correct question that all of us should have, 
is why are we still alive? Why? Why are you that good? Are you that special? They're looking at the ones that got killed and they want to know why. Why? It doesn't seem fair or maybe they did something wrong. And Jesus is basically saying without saying it, you're asking the wrong question because you're no different. And you too, unless you repent of your sin, you will perish. You will be undone. You will be cast into hell. Why do you and I enjoy much peace? Why are we not afflicted? Why are our children not ripped from our hands into death? Why are not our loved ones hurled through a windshield, struck dead by a bullet, ravaged by cancer? Why? And when you start to frame it a different way, you start to think differently. Sin always brings suffering. Sin, more importantly, brings judgment. And that judgment by God is eternal. That every man, woman, and child in this world is sitting under the judgment of eternal damnation unless someone comes to take his sin. Unless someone takes my sin, I am guilty. I will suffer in eternity. I will perish. That word perish literally means to be undone in every way, not just like vaguely die. So get this into your heads. And also get into your head the idea that suffering is actually redemptive. It's a story of redemption. Now, now track with me on this because it's very important. Because suffering, for the, and, and as a Christian, you need to grasp this. Suffering is the story of the Son of God who came to suffer as a man, take, a God taking on flesh like us, a man of no honor and pursued like a rabbit by hounds who sought to devour him, a man who was lied to and lied about, a man betrayed by a friend and a man denied by another friend, a man who was whipped and mocked and scorned and nailed to a cross, a man who died in the most horrific of manner. God in human flesh suffered. But in this suffering, he was redemptive. Not for himself, for God had not sinned. But he was redemptive for those whom he came to save. He took their sin. He took the horrid eternal consequences of our sin upon himself, and he suffered in our place. And so the Bible says we are redeemed through his suffering. We are healed because of his stripes. We are brought to true life through his death. And so then, when we believe in Christ, he bids us to walk the path that he walked, And it's a path of suffering. It's a path of sorrow, the way of sorrow. So with that in mind, let's deal with this broad sense of trials, but keep it in mind that we are walking down a path as Christians that Christ's path walked. And it's a path of sorrows. It's a path of suffering. And he calls us to walk this path. When we talk about trials and sufferings, the most general way of doing it is just hardships, suffering, trials. Those are the words we'll use, not because of discipline, not because of suffering for his namesake, just simply living life, you and I will suffer in various ways. And so go with me to James chapter 1, James chapter 1, near the back of the Bible. If you find yourself in Hebrews, which is a much bigger book, keep turning a few more pages and you'll come to James. If you find yourself in First or Second Peter, you went just a tad too far. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Many of you know this passage well, but some of you, this might be one of the first times you've ever examined it. Here now, James is writing. He says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work 
so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, at this point, if you didn't know, James is writing the very first book of the New Testament. This was written right about 45 AD. So up to this point, there was no New Testament. And this is the very first book that the church received, okay? So they had the Old Testament, and that's it. And then James wrote this letter. So they're reading, the people who are reading this for the first time, this is the very first book of the New Testament that they received, And so the church is very young, and what is happening is that the early church is suffering a lot, and they're confused, and they don't know what's going on, and so James is writing to correct and clarify things so they might know what to do and how to interpret life and what's happening in their life. And in fact, what it is is exactly what we're studying right now in Acts the early church and all the persecutions and all of that, that is what's happening. And as a result of that, James will write this letter. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. The verse one is just the introduction. And then he gets into verse two, the, the command. And there's only one command in this passage in verses two through four. Only one command. It is one to consider, or maybe your translation says regard or count but it's to consider, to regard, or to count. And he's not talking to the church as a whole that we are to count it all joy, but he's saying to each one of you individually to count it joy. In fact, all joy. In fact, more than that, in the Greek, which is how the New Testament was written in the Greek language, the all joy is put in what's called the position of emphasis, the emphatic position, meaning all joy consider, all joy you count. What is it you're supposed to consider? He says all joy is what is to be your focus. That's the attitude, the choice. For every one of you who is a Christian in the midst of general suffering, he says you are to count it all joy. That's what the word all means. It's an unmixed joy. It captures the idea of unmixed with conflicting thoughts. And that's hard, isn't it? Because some of you right now are suffering. Or some of you are witnessing a brother or sister suffer, and those thoughts are not always so unmixed, are they? There's this back and forth. But he says you are called to have an unmixed joy that you count or consider. Notice also that there's the inevitability of trials. Having the call to consider nothing but joy, that's a very literal and good translation. Consider it nothing but joy, he says, and just so you know, trials are inevitable. So he says, when? Not if, but when you encounter these trials. Now, let me break down a couple more words. I really want to tear this passage apart because, frankly, the thing I spend most of my life doing as a pastor is helping people think through trials. They're coming to me and saying, but this happened. I don't know. And, and I spend so much of my time walking them through these things. That's not a complaint. That's just what I do. These are very difficult, complex trials. They're not talking about the stubbing of your toe or you have a bad headache or, or you have a cold. Oh, I'm, I'm suffering a trial right now. No, you're not. You just got a cold. Welcome to living in a fallen world. The word encounter, it literally means to fall into and become surrounded. In fact, Luke in his gospel talks about falling among robbers. What you're doing is you're walking through life and all of a sudden a pit opens up underneath you. Now remember, I'm talking to Christians here. For the non-Christian, your whole life is a pit. It's true though, isn't it? I don't mean that to be light. It's just ultimately, what are you heading toward? You're heading toward nothing. Without Christ, all you're heading toward is death and then damnation. But for the Christian, now you've been brought into life in Christ and you've been saved and forgiven and you start to think that certain things should be happening in your life, like everything is supposed to get better. And then the pit opens up and you're like, what is going on? And that's what he's describing is you've encountered, fallen into and are surrounded by this trial. 
And then to just really press this hard, he says these various trials. And you, you think, well, that just means different kinds. No, that's not what that word means. It means variegated, multifaceted, multicolored. You guys have all looked through a kaleidoscope at some point, hopefully. If not, you should go do it. And you know how you turn it and it just constantly is evolving and changing? That's what this word means. He's saying that you're walking along life and all of a sudden the pit opens up, you fall down, and everywhere you turn, this thing is slightly different and there's no way out. You're in trouble. Things are bad. And it's going to happen. He says, when you do this, when this happens, what what does he command you to do? Count it nothing but joy. So why? Well, he moves from the command in verse, to verse 3 to quickly un- state why. Because that's hard. I'm not lying to you. I, I'm not going to pretend that that's fun. But he commands us to count it nothing but joy. Now why? Well, verse 3 begins to answer it. He does it two ways. He talks about something they know, and then he's going to talk about something they need to know. First the know, then the what you need to know, meaning they don't know it yet, or not all of them do. The knowing, in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance or endurance. All right, that, that knowing is, is a word that is not just a head knowledge. We all have that. This is an experiential knowledge. He says, you guys already know from experience. Remember, the early church, right away, stoning of Stephen, he's dead, and now the church is persecuted, and now they're all fleeing for their lives, and then Paul, Saul comes along looking to kill them all and put them into prison, and then he's converted, and then he's suffering, and from that point on, the church is suffering. And so they already are having this experience, but we all have this experience in our life. We just learn it, and we don't even necessarily grasp that we learn it. He says, knowing from experience that something is happening, that their faith is being tested. Now, what what does that mean? Knowing that the testing of your faith, what's going on here? It's, It's a testing that is designed to make your faith more pure. It's not a testing to see if it's genuine. It's, it's really testing it to, to make it purer. And as your faith becomes purer, you become more persevering. You begin to endure better and longer. And they know this. Any of you that's ever done athletics, you know it, right? You start out on the first day of track, and they got you running, and you're barfing about a mile in because you have no endurance. But at the end of it, you're, you're, you're leaner and stronger and greater endurance, and you can go much further. Anyone who understands sports knows that idea. It's just that ability to endure, and it's through the hardship of, of the sport. Listen to me. One mark of a maturing believer is the willingness to stay under a trial. On the other hand, what I have found, though, as a pastor, is that the immature believer spends massive amounts of time trying to get out from under the trial. God says, you're walking through life, the pit opens up, you fall down, you're surrounded, and now you're, you're one focus in life is to figure out how to get out from it, right? And God says, no, your one focus is what? Count it nothing but joy. Why? Why, God? Knowing, knowing from experience that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And the very fact that you're looking to get out of it shows that you need perseverance, Behind all of that is very serious and fallacious thinking. It's, it's the thought that true joy is found in painlessness and pleasure. It's a false understanding of the purposes of God. It's, it's actually a denial of the gospel because the gospel has told you that Christ died for your sins in your place. And now, having believed the gospel, he calls you, pick up your cross and follow me. And you say, no, 
He's like, if any man does not, he is not worthy of me. You deny the gospel in that. There's a serious error in people's minds, believing that God's purposes should not involve pain or suffering, that depression or amputation or unemployment or imprisonment would ever be part of God's will. No, God would never will that. And yet he does. So that's what they know. They know that if they endure the testing of their faith, it will produce endurance or perseverance. And then he talks about what they need to know. And he says, and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's here's the point. Endurance. Now hear me. Endurance is not the goal. It's a result, but it's not the goal. It's not enough to count trials and suffering as nothing but joy. You will never rejoice in, thank, give thanks to God for the trials in your life if all it is is to make you persevere. That's not enough. That An unbeliever can do that. What he says is, the reason that you need to let it produce endurance is that as that endurance or perseverance occurs... If you'll let that enduring come to its proper end, it will come about and bring completion or perfection. What's he mean? The command here is to continue in patient, enduring, or persevering so that the goal can come about, and the goal is to be perfect and complete. So what does that mean? Well, perfect doesn't mean perfect like most of you tend to think. Perfect simply is the word to complete, uh, to come to the end, to go, be, come to the goal, to cross the end. It's in football, entering the end zone, right? In a, in a race, it's crossing the finish line. It's not sinlessness, it's becoming full grown, it's coming to maturity. The focus is on the end product. Complete is similar, just a slightly different aspect to it. It's the focus on not being perfect and mature. It's the focus on becoming perfect or mature or complete in all aspects. So all of you, the fullness of your being is complete and mature. Every true Christian, every true Christian wants to grow in Christ. Every true Christian wants to become more mature. What you don't understand is that whenever you ask God for that, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get trials. Just so you know, you say, well, okay, then I'm not going to ask for perfection and maturity. Just so you know while you walk, he'll stick the pit in your path anyhow because he's going to make you perfect and complete lacking in nothing. I I am not a good pastor in this way. And I wish I was a better, kinder man. It's just so hard for me to feel sorry for people because I, 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 I know this so well. I've experienced it in my own life as well. I'm, I'm growing in compassion. Maybe before I die, I'll actually be known as a compassionate man. But I look and people come to me and they're like, bah, bah, and it's like, yeah, it says it's going to happen. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know what you want me to say to you. I, I can't fix it for you. God's opened the path. Just endure with joy, all joy, unmixed joy. But I, I don't have another word for you. Just endure with joy. God's working. God's in the midst. I'm sorry. It's no fun. Keep your eyes on what he's doing. Don't focus on the other stuff because that will bring you nothing. And so this is why you must order your mind to count it nothing but joy when you fall into trials. God has ordained them. That's why you're, you're not happy because of the trial. The trial stinks. The trial hurts. Trust me, God knows how to mess with you in ways that nothing else in this world and creation can do. He knows your strengths and he knows your weaknesses and he will do things in such a way as to draw out the immaturity in you. He's brutal in that way. 
Brutal as a loving father, though. And so you have to learn to order your mind to count it nothing but joy because you understand God has ordained them to move you to maturity. In other words, you're, if you want to use Paul's word, he says that he would say that in the trials you are learning to become conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. And every Christian, true Christian, wants that. They want more of Christ. They want to see Christ in their life and be more like their Lord and Savior. Well, it's going to be through the path of sorrow. Now listen, an unbeliever can endure much. And at the best, it's so that he will become tougher, stronger. And so he comes up with cute sayings like this, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's stoicism. That's a false, godless belief. That was developed back in before the time of Christ. And, and there's a whole movement in the Greek culture of stoicism. It doesn't make you stronger because you're still marching inevitably toward death and one day you will die. It may be a tower will fall on you. It may be a soldier will kill you, collect your blood and mix it with animal blood. It may be that you just die of cancer. It may be that you die at a ripe old age of 110, but you're still dead. You're not stronger. You're under the curse and the condemnation of God. A Stoic believes that they need to suck it up and endure without emotion But only a believer can find joy, pure, unmixed joy in enduring much suffering because they know that God is present and his heart is bringing you into maturity and Christ-likeness. So the joy comes not because of the trial, but because of what God is doing in the trial. Beloved, I have witnessed, uh, not witnessed, uh, counseled countless people over countless things I've, I've had to listen to people share horrible stories of things done to them, things that's happened as Christians, and, and they're, they're, they're coming and they're like, why, why? And the one thing I have said, I can't even number them anymore, is listen, the one thing you must grasp is God was not absent during that time. He was very much present, just like he is now. And you've got to hold on to that and grasp that and see that God is at work in it. Well, turn a few more pages toward the back of the Bible to another passage in First Peter. So right after James, so it's only maybe two, three pages you have to turn, you'll go to chapter 1 of First Peter. Now, on the surface, this passage is going to sound very much like James. In fact, he uses the exact same words in many ways that James uses. So we think we tend to think the same thing is going on. But he's actually focusing on trials now from a different perspective. So Peter starts out this letter to the scattered Christians by reminding them of the great saving work of the Father through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the regenerating work of the Spirit. Regeneration simply is that our hearts are dead in sin and the Holy Spirit makes our hearts alive now to Christ and we believe and we follow Christ and we're alive now. But even before reminding them of those truths, I want you to look at verse 1. I'm going to strip away all of the extraneous words, okay? And I'm going to give you just the absolute core, the most basic part of this sentence of verse 1, okay? And, he, and this is what he says. He says, Paul, Peter, an apostle of Christ, to exiles or aliens or strangers, depending on translation, who are chosen. In other words, what he is saying here is that we... A Christian has been chosen by God to be a stranger in the world we live in. And isn't that true for every one of you who's a Christian in this room? You don't belong here, and you know it, but you still got to live in this world. And you constantly are fighting because the world is pushing on you, seeking to make you conform yourself to it. And you don't want it, but you conform yourself at times to it. And there's this, oh, how long, O oh Lord? 
And so he's writing to these Christians. This is also a very, very early letter written to the church. And he is saying, look, you have been chosen by God to no longer belong to this world. But then the rest of this letter is written to them on how they are to live as aliens and strangers in this world. And then right away he gets into the glorious work of God in our lives. And so he says that we've been born again by God's foreknowledge in verse 2, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit where he sets us apart for the purposes of God to obey or to the obedience of Jesus Christ that through faith in Christ we now walk in obedience. We've been sprinkled by his blood, a picture of the cleansing like in the Old Testament that they would sprinkle the blood and the sin would be forgiven. And so then he praises God in verse 3, and he talks about in the last half of verse 3 that through the resurrection of Christ, we have this living hope that no longer are we just hoping that things might get better, but now we have an abiding living hope in us. In verse 4, he then says that we have not only this hope, but we have a permanent inheritance, one that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. They will, it will never go away. And just in fact, just in case you're afraid you'll lose this inheritance that God has promised you, he says, I've kept it safe for you where? In heaven. And nobody can go into heaven and take that from you. So it's there, safe for you. And then in verse 5, he switches from what he has given us, which is the inheritance, he now switches to you and I, and that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That he says, not only do you have a permanent inheritance, not only do you have a living hope, but you yourself are kept safe by the power of the omnipotent one, the one who holds all things together with his own power, he holds you safe. No one can snatch you from his hand. And here's the point. When you learn to rightly grasp the full truth of what he just said, then when you're hit by trials, which is what he's now going to talk about, you can learn to rejoice. So notice what he says. He says, in this, in this, what's he talking about there? What's the in this referring to? It's referring backwards. It's referring back to the things that I just said. You have a living hope. You have a permanent inheritance. You are protected. And in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved or distressed by various trials. If you're not rejoicing, I'm not trying to be mean, but this is a rebuke for some of you, but I'm I'm not trying to do it I'll just let the word rebuke you, okay? If you're not rejoicing in the midst of your suffering right now, it's because you're not focusing on the right thing. You're focusing on your trials. You're focusing on what you feel like you're missing out on. And you're not focusing on the fact that you have been born again to a living hope that he has promised you an internal inheritance that is kept safe for you and that you yourself are kept by his power. He says, that's what you have to cling to. That's what you greatly rejoice in. Even though, now notice, you're rejoicing here, right? And over here, you're grieved. And both of them are happening at the same time. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? that you can have both happening at the same time. But when those things click in your mind, when, when God has so tested you and brought you through the difficulties that you begin to strip away how all so often you and I make all kinds of other things so much more important, and he just starts to one by one strip you from those things, and you start to just rest in the gifts that God has given you, which are eternal and perfect, then what happens is your eyes begin to blaze with a glory and a joy. You can't even contain that joy. You have a hope, and you will greatly rejoice. Even though now, he says, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by these various trials. 
Let's just break that down. The various trials is the same thing like in James. It's that multicolored, variegated. We're going to be tempted and tested. God has a way of tweaking trials to make them very unique and never quite the same as last time. Haven't you noticed that, that sometimes you have something happen to you and you're like, oh, okay, I know what to do. And then you find out you don't know what to do. And it's because God has tweaked it just so much that it's not fixable. You can't fix it. Everyone wants to get in a trial and then come to pastor and say, so what do I do to fix this? Well, you endure. You persevere with great joy, remembering what God has given you. You're distressed. You're grieved. These trials cause us a lot of distress and grief. This is something that you need to understand because this idea of being distressed or grieved shows that the trials attack us at this emotional level. They draw out these things that will bring you great grief. And it's really the difference between emotions and affections. We've talked about this many times, so many of you know, but not all of you. Emotions are very fickle and changing, and that's why you don't and never should trust your emotions. We don't care what you feel. It's what it's God called you to do and to believe, not what you feel. You let your emotions control you, and you're going to be a miserable basket case, in fact, Whereas affections are that which is very deep and abiding, and they're the convictions by which you live. Now, as a Christian, when you're brand new as a baby Christian, your your affections and your emotions tend to be very similar, and so you're all over the map. But as you grow in your faith, and as God puts you in these testings and these trials, what happens is they begin to separate, so that now my emotions are over here, and I'm having a bad day, and yet I'm still rejoicing. Now, the best way to example that, give this example is when if you're a mother of small children, and, and especially when you're a brand new first-time mother with your first baby, and you're just starting to wonder if you'll ever sleep again and you're tired, and the baby maybe has colic, and, and you can't comfort the baby, and it's not, the baby's not sleeping through the night yet, and you're tired, and he's tired, and everyone's cranky, and the husband's kind of like peeking in the front door before he comes home because he's not sure he wants to come home because he's not sure he wants to look at his wife and her be cranky and tired and all of that. And if you were to ask her how she feels, she is exhausted, she's frustrated, she's discouraged, she's angry, she's all of these things. But if you were to ask her, do you want me just to take the baby from you? Of course, what would she say? No, I love my baby. Why? Because that's her affections. Her affections control. And so even though she's cranky and tired and frustrated, she gathers her baby and cares for that baby because that's the abiding affection. That's what he is talking about here. You have, the, you have this passing grief, but you have an abiding, deep joy that is what motivates you to press forward. And what happens in these trials is that the emotions get revealed, but even in the midst of that, you rejoice, even while you may have tears. You know, my father passed away. I'm not one to show a lot of emotion. I got the phone call from my sister, and she says, Dad died. I said, okay. I hung up, and I was alone. And I, I, I had sorrow, and I was so thankful that he was gone. He loved the Lord. He was worn out. He was finished, and he was with the Lord. And so though I had tears, I also had great joy. Now notice he also says in this passage, if necessary, if necessary, you'll have these trials. That means just what it means. It's necessary, which means that not everyone will have to suffer like everyone else, only if it's necessary. And so that tells me two things. First, trials come into my life and they come into your life only because They're necessary. Can you accept that? Just accept that. You're like, why? Why, Lord? Why again? Why again? Well, apparently it's necessary. 
and I hate to say it, but some people are hard-headed. This might shock you, because probably none of you, but there are those who are somewhat hard-headed, and they keep fighting and pushing and coming up with a way to get around the trial instead of letting us have its perfect result. And God's like, all right, we can do this again. And he brings it again and again and again. It's necessary. That's why. But that's okay. I have great comfort then. I have great comfort when I'm frightened and afflicted that it's necessary I go through this. Second, I also have learned in that it tells me that trials will come and go because sometimes they're not what? Necessary. And we love those times, right? Thank you. Thank you for that time of respite. But then they will be necessary again. But now we come to the core of the issue here in this passage. He says, so that, verse 7, circle that, it's the purpose, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we're to the core. The purpose and the reason we're to rejoice is because in the suffering and in the trials, your faith is going to be proven to be genuine. See, in in James, it's saying he will purify your faith. In James, what happens is you and I, we like to lie to ourselves and say that my faith is this big, all right? And some of you are like, well, no, mine's more like this. And then some of you are actually thinking they're pretty humble. So you say, no, 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 my my faith is like maybe a golf ball size. And then God puts you in the trial and he purifies that and it gets really small. In fact, it gets to be the size of a mustard seed, which is okay. Because the faith of a mustard, the size of a mustard seed saves The trial just strips away all that fake stuff that you and I lie to ourselves about. We think we're all so mighty until the trial comes. But here, what Peter is saying is, no, it's going to show you that the faith is genuine. And so he puts you into this this crucible, and the flames of the trial heats it up, and if it's genuine, it will remain. And anything that's not genuine will be burned away. But there will be many who in the midst of the trials, Christ talks about this in the parable of the soils, that in the midst of persecution and trials and hardships, they fall away and walk no longer with them because their faith was not resting in Christ but in themselves. And that's why we rejoice. I have watched people who have been afflicted by trials where I have actually asked the Lord, some of you actually are in this room right this moment, where in my own private prayers, I'm like, why, Lord? How much more? Give them rest. And yet what makes me marvel at the grace of God is that those people, in fact, some of you are here in this room, you're still here. You're still walking and you're still persevering. And some of you in this room right now think you are the worst of the worst, and you're failing all day long, and yet you're still here walking with Christ. Why? Because he caused you to be born again to a living hope, and you don't fall away, and you remain faithful. You don't even know how. In fact, you would look at yourself and say, don't follow me. I'm limping away as worse as I can possibly do. Oh, goodness, go look at somebody else, not me. And what you don't know is your pastor will tell people, go watch, go look. They're limping, pressing forward in Christ. It's good. And some people who have been so mighty and proud and arrogant about how they are, and they're the ones that are quick to to point their fingers and nail and rip on other people because they're not as holy as they are, then when the trials of affliction comes, you find out their faith is nothing. And they're not there anymore. So Peter uses the picture of this refining 
to explain the purpose of our suffering. And notice in verse 7, this forward-looking, we're, we're under the current for, forward-looking aspect. We're, we're bearing up under the current trials because we're looking to our future reward when Christ comes. So that at the end of it, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of you right now are still saying, when, Lord, when will it end? When does it end according to this verse? When Christ comes or you die. <laughs> That's it. And you're like, well, I, I, could we get it done a little earlier? No. <laughs> no, sorry, that's not how it works. Do you see how radically that changes how you counsel people? Maybe you'll understand your pastor that he's not quite as mean as some of you maybe think he is, but that he wants your best. He wants you to grow. He wants you to understand this is your life. This is what you came to when you came to faith in Christ. What did you think you were going to get? Yeah, you laugh, and I know why you laugh. Yeah, what did you think? I mean, Joel Olstein, your best life now? Come on. <laughs> but that's the lies we hear, right? No, he's called you to a, the, the Via Della Rosa, the, the path of sorrows. If you're not a Christian, that is what Christ is calling you to. But what does he promise you? He promises that in him you find full forgiveness. You're given life. The world looks at you. Do they see you as a jointer with Jesus? No, they don't. They think you're a fool. They see you in many different ways, but they do not see you as you really are, a jointer with Christ, bought with a price, Precious as child of God? No, you're an idiot. You're a fool. When they look at, to Jesus, do they understand him? No. They see him as many things, but not as they ought to view him as the supreme Lord, who they are to bow and follow and love. And when Christ has come and we are revealed to be who we are, finally alongside him, you can believe me or not, but everything that you've suffered will fall away and be turned to joy. It's good. It's good. It's all held together by the love of Christ. Listen, the overarching truth to suffering for a Christian is that it is never vain, ever. It's never worthless. God is in the midst of it as the one who disciplines you into repentance sometimes, or he's pressing you into maturity until that faith fully rests on Christ and only Christ. To say it another way, suffering is always, always for the Christian, redemptive. Always. He never just makes you suffer because. Jesus Christ promised that in this world, in this age of sin and death, you will always have tribulation. But then he says, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. How? Well, listen, listen to Isaiah, verse 3 of chapter 53. Listen to Isaiah talking about Jesus Christ. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, if that's our Lord's calling in this world, then what is our calling? For we cannot rise above our master. There is simply one simple response consistent through all of these points. So let me just draw all of this to a close, and we'll get out of trials, or at least preaching about trials for a while, okay? Let me just put it all together. One response, no matter what. Am I suffering because of the name of Christ? Am I suffering because I did stupid things and now the consequences are on me? Am I suffering because Christ, God is uh, disciplining me as a, a, a disobedient child? Am I just suffering, just because? 
What is my response? The response on all of them are the exact same thing. Remain, abide, endure. Bear up under it because God is at work in it. The Father will bring you discipline and hardship for your good. And the reason is because you are bought with the blood of Christ, his Son, and he is the beloved of the Father. And because you're in him, you are also beloved. And so the power and the ability to remain and endure in the midst of suffering will be found because you have the Spirit of God given to you that you might do so. So, beloved, endure. Endure in Christ. Fix your eyes on the author and the finisher of your faith, and you will do well. Let's pray. Holy Father, trials are trials. And we need so much that we have to work through and battle. Our minds are easily distracted and frustrated. We become captured by the things of this world. We buy into lies. We're conformed into this age. And yet you bought us out of this age. You've called us to be strangers. For each one here afflicted right now or talking to others who have been afflicted, that they might have kind words, words of mercy to encourage the person to press on, to to endure. For the unbeliever here, that they might see that apart from Christ, there is no purpose. Only through Christ and in Jesus Christ might they find forgiveness and then life but that is a life in which they are then invited to walk a path of sorrows in this world for their good. So open our eyes to these things, Father, that we might see and behold the mercies of our Father in heaven. We ask in your Son's name, amen.